Today we're going to get straight into our series, picking it up in Acts chapter 21. We're going to be picking up from verse 17, so we'll be straight into it today. Um, so if you'd like to uh, please read that out. This is lovely, isn't it? We get to all read and participate today. So here we go, verse 17. When we arrived at Jerusalem... Thank you, well read. Have you ever received some really good news? And by good news, I mean good news. You know, good news that has just made your heart sing. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? You know, news that you get that just makes your heart flutter. Maybe for you it was as a grandparent when your first grandchild was born and you were given that news. Maybe that was just that one of those moments for you where there was just that great, great news and that great feeling that came upon you at that moment. Maybe for other of us it may have been when we were studying and so we got our results back on that assignment and we were overjoyed with how good that was. You know, yes, not only did we pass, but we got a great mark. I'm sure we've had those moments. Or when you've been at work and your boss has called you into their office, like happened to me once. I used to be a retail buyer. So I'd buy stock from suppliers in Australia and overseas, import it if I needed to, and then distribute it out to the shops that we had, 28 shops. So uh, I was called into the office one day after we'd just come back from our honeymoon, actually, and um, I'd taken four weeks off, which was the first time I'd taken any leave longer than a few days. And I was taken into, uh, my, my manager said to me, Aaron, can you just come into the um, general manager's office, please? We need to, to talk to you about something. And I was thinking, oh, no, what have I done? You know, what did they discover while I was away or whatever? And they came to me and said, look, Aaron, we are so sorry. We had, and so, you know, when, when, when your general manager and your buying manager comes to start the conversation, we're really sorry. You think, oh, no, I'm gone, right? But they followed that, that we had no idea how much work you did. <laughs> we had to bring three people in to cover just your one role for that for while you're away because we was you know couldn't cope. Um, so here's a bonus, you know, like that. That's good news, isn't it? We have those times where we get that good news, and I tell you what, the emotional roller coaster of that day was something something unique. Maybe it, it happened uh, to you with a kid. Maybe you know your child's come home with an award, and so. You, you get to celebrate those moments. And I can envisage that that was the kind of atmosphere that Paul experienced when he returned to Jerusalem and gave his report. See, what a wonderful homecoming it must have been for him. They were warmly welcomed by the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. They were able to give them desperately needed resources to help them in their struggle through the famine. And they were then given the opportunity to share all that God had been doing, giving a detailed report on how God was moving in power among the Gentiles through Paul's ministry and how the gospel was exploding, how it was going forth in leap and bound. It's like when we get reports from missionaries today and we, we hear all that God is doing in and through them and how the kingdom is advancing, the gospel is flourishing in and through their ministry. It's a real joy and such an encouragement. I'm sure that's also the feelings that were going on here because the response of the elders and of James was to praise God. They knew exactly where the glory goes. They weren't praising Paul, they were praising God. The glory all goes to God. He was doing a mighty work in and amongst the Gentiles and he was worthy of praise for the work that was being done. I love hearing good news. 
I love being able to celebrate the good things in life. You know, the joy that Damo has every day out in the, the police force. You know, just the, celebrating the, those good things as, as well. Um, uh, Leslie. To hear the things that you've been able to do, you know, just the way that God has reached in and, and blessed you. Like, these are great things that we can, in the midst of trying and troubling circumstances, God is right there with us throughout all of that. I love hearing good news. But you know the word I don't like hearing after I've been told some good news? But. This really good thing happened, but. You know, you got a really nice bonus, but the hot water service blew up. Well, there goes that. You got a really great mark on that assignment, but you failed another one. You got a promotion, but now you have to work weekends. But sort of takes the wind out of your sails. And it taints great news and, and really makes it very ordinary, doesn't it? And I feel like Paul, he cops a but here. Read for me verses 20 and t- to 22. That sounds like a but to me, doesn't it? Paul cops one right between the eyes it's such great news that you brought to us about all that god is doing but there are thousands of jewish believers here in jerusalem and all of them are zealous for the law of moses and they have been hearing stories that you paul yeah that's right that's you have been teaching jews who live outside of jerusalem to disregard moses completely you've been telling them not to circumcise their kids and that they shouldn't live according to our customs. What are we going to do? They have certainly heard that you've come here, and you know what a mob does in Jerusalem, right? What are we going to do? So what is going on? What's the situation in Jerusalem? Well, zeal for the law, zeal for the law was obviously pervasive among the believing Jews. So while they're apparently genuine believers, they were still clinging to many of their practices that they had learned since childhood. I mean, What would you do if you'd been raised all your life in a certain way, in a certain culture, in in a strictly orthodox belief system? Is it likely that you would immediately forsake your entire upbringing just because now you believe in Jesus Christ? It's pretty actually unrealistic that we would make that expectation placed upon these people because that was the culture they were brought up in. I mean, we've all been brought up in different cultures as children Our parents provide a cultural framework for us to be brought up in. One of those little intricacy things when you get married is that you've got a marriage of two cultures. And that doesn't mean that, you know, you're from different countries. It just means that you're different families. One of those things that we discovered when we were first married was that our family, whenever you had a meal, you had a jug of water or whatever on the table. In Kelly's family, they they never associated drinking with eating. And so you wouldn't have drinks on the table while you're eating. And so when, when we set the table, and go, oh gee, oh, gee, I'm thirsty. Where are the drinks? You know, and it's like, you know, oh, you need a drink, you know, when you're eating? Well, yep, yep, I do. You're right, I do. Um, and so, so that was one of those little things. But can you imagine an entire belief system, a whole religious upbringing, orthodox belief system, just all of a sudden, like you're just going to forsake all of that? It was actually part of their identity of who they were. And so that is what's going on here in Jerusalem. And as we've seen in Acts, Paul, Peter and John still observed many of the Mosaic laws, praying, observing the Sabbath. And so after coming to faith in Messiah, in Jesus, 
these lifelong Jews did not abruptly cease living like Jews. And it's important to note that God himself was very tolerant of the believing Jews continuing to practice Jewish feasts and the like during this period of transition, knowing how difficult it was for the Jewish Christians to break with their past. God also knew that in a few years' time, uh, that there was going to be a thing come up called the Jewish Revolt Against Rome in AD 66-70, which culminated in the destruction of the Jerusalem Temple, and basically all of Jerusalem, um, and so the influence of the Jerusalem Church after that waned considerably. So, you know, God's sort of like, yeah, I know what's coming, you know, it's okay, it's all good. And so then Christianity gradually became a predominantly Gentile faith, and other churches, such as Antioch and Alexandria, um, ascended more to the forefront of the Christian center, I guess. But that didn't mean that these zealous Jewish believers went away, unfortunately for Paul, because Paul began to call these people Judaizers. These bitter enemies of the gospel of grace had dogged Paul's footsteps throughout his missionary journeys. And in fact, he wrote Galatians largely to counter their dangerous false teachings because they deny that salvation is by grace through faith alone, insisting that keeping the Mosaic law was required for salvation. They just didn't get it. And what these people didn't have was good teaching about how they were supposed to navigate this issue. And so, in fact, one day God would have to send a special letter to the Jews the epistle to the Hebrews, to explain the relationship between the Old and New Covenants. One commentator I was reading said the book of Hebrews was written to the Hebrews to tell them to stop being Hebrews. That's a pretty good reason why that book was there, right? And it didn't exist for them at this point in time, however. That came later. And so the elders of the Jerusalem church were trying to work out what to do with Paul and how to placate these zealous Jews. See, no one was actually wrong here. The same grace that gave the Gentiles freedom to abstain also gave the Jews freedom to observe. All God asked was that they receive one another and not create problems or divisions. Easier said than done, though, I believe. So if we go to verses 23 and 24. So, do what we tell you. Thank you. So they recognize that Paul's presence amongst them is a potential powder keg. And so they put together a strategy that they believe would ease the tension so nothing would blow up in their faces. They asked Paul to join with the four men who've made a vow to join their purification and pay their expenses. And we've obviously got no reference for this in our culture. So let me explain what this all means for us. So the vows these men had taken is what called a Nazarite vow. It involved such a consecrated dedication to God that the vow called for rigorous steps to ensure purity. Not only did the Nazarite abstain from wine and strong drink, grape juice, grapes or raisins, they would also grow their hair long and wear it unbound as a symbol of strength in honour of the Lord. They were also to have no association with the dead and on the final day of the vow, certain sacrifices were offered, including the hair cut from the consecrated head. So they'd shave the head. The significance of the vow was a demonstration of these people's dedication to God. And so if Paul went with them and personally paid for the cost of their offering, it would show that he did not object to Jewish converts following Old Testament customs voluntarily, so long as those same customs were not required of Gentile believers. And so the next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. 
Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. And so he follows through on exactly what he's been asked to do. And you might be thinking, what on earth is Paul doing here? I mean, why is he putting himself back under the law? What, what happened to grace? Why is he following this unnecessary requirement? Hasn't Paul just become someone that he's spent so much energy teaching against? Does this make him a hypocrite? Well, Paul was still Jewish. And we know that he had a heart to reach his own people with the gospel. That was one of the main reasons he went back to Jerusalem. And so I believe what's happening here is actually full of grace. You see, Paul violently opposed going back under the law for salvation. But if as a saved man, he could win a Jew, he would go back under the law. I mean, do we remember his words when he says that he will become all things to all men so as to win some for Christ? If he could win a Jew, then he'd be the best Jew that he could be. So that person could be saved. And so we get to verse 27. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him shouting, Fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. So these Jews, most probably were from Ephesus, were obviously opposed to Paul and stirred up trouble. They had made an accusation against him which was a lie. And so these Jews from Ephesus charged Paul with defiling the temple by taking a Gentile beyond the stone barrier that divided the outer courtyard, the courtyard of the Gentiles, from the inner sanctuary, which was off limits to Gentiles, under the penalty of death. But their accusation was a lie because Paul, knowing of the death penalty, would not have brought a Gentile into that forbidden area. And so we get a very sad chapter Um, in the book of Acts. And so I'm going to read from verse 30. The whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the riders saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another, and since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great, he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, Get rid of him in scenes reminiscent of christ the jewish mob in jerusalem wanted violence and so paul is arrested and taken away in chains and it's amazing the provision of god here too because the wisdom of the romans was great because actually in the corner in the wall in one of the corners of the temple grounds they actually constructed their tower and that was their home base. And so as the temple was the largest space where, where crowds could gather, they built their base right in that area. And so when it says immediately gates were shut, you know, when it says that at once the soldiers were able to intervene, you know, God had actually provided them in his amazing provision to be right there at the right time and to keep be keeping watch. 
And so Paul is actually protected through this by the soldiers because if they weren't there, then Paul would have been dead within moments. And so what darted out as such a joyful time of homecoming and sharing great news of how God is working in mighty ways through the Gentiles, Paul now finds himself in the custody of the Gentiles. I don't know who needs to hear this word today, but I know someone does. Don't give up. I put this interesting picture, but I don't want... I love the, the effort that this mouse has gone to in not giving up. Um, but I don't want us to lose the importance of those words. Don't give up. God is right with you in the midst of your present circumstances. Don't be discouraged. It is during the hard times that our faith is tested. You know, it is under pressure that diamonds come to being. Those things that started out as great news, those moments of joy that you experienced, those ones that were still great but then were followed by a but, God is right there with you still. You see, each of us will face very challenging circumstances. This week, Jenny shared with me about a young foster child who stopped breathing at just three years of age. CPR was administered, he did survive, yet the doctors found a cancerous tumour in his brainstem. Poor little Cain needs our prayers and so do his foster parents and the doctors. God is right there even in moments such as these. Paul knew that he would be facing this when he went to Jerusalem. He knew that what he was walking into was a perilous situation, yet he remained faithful to the leading of the Holy Spirit and to the calling that God had placed upon his life. But do you know that there is actually a but that redeems moments such as these? There is a but that takes the most difficult and the most challenging circumstances and turns them into freedom and joy. That is but God. Ephesians 2, 4-5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. But God. These two words are overflowing with gospel. For sinners like you and me who were once lost and completely unable to save ourselves from our dead set rebellion against God, there may not be two more hopeful words that we could utter. John Bloom puts it like this. Once we were dead to any real love for God at all, buried under the compounding and disorienting blindness of our sins, but God. Once we were deceived by our own lust for glory and self-determination, once we were unknowingly led by the Pied Piper called the Prince of the Power of the Air, but God. Once we lived enslaved to the passions of our flesh, being driven and tossed between the impulsive waves of our flesh and mind, but God. Once we were God's enemies, hating him, children of his wrath, but God. But God being rich in mercy, but God showing his incomprehensible love for us in that while we were still yet sinners, he said to us, God dead, God ignoring, God rivaling, God hating, dry bone children of wrath, live Live to true beauty, live to true glory, live to true hope, live to true pleasure, live to true joy, live to God and live forever. 
And it did so by taking our God-deadening, God-ignoring, God-rivaling, God-hating, God-wrath-inducing sin and placing it on his son, the life. And he said, die. And so he who knew no sin became our sin for us, for an infinitely hellish moment became a child of wrath for us, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him so that we might live forever. These two words, but God, tell us that we have been saved only by God's grace. Dead children of wrath do not become living, loving children of God, but for God. Revel in these two priceless words, everything sweet and bitter that will occur between now and the moment of your death God will work for your good and every glorious pleasure that you will ever enjoy in your future eternal life in his presence because of the gospel of these two words, but God. And so none of us know what is ahead. None of us know if there will be a hardship and pain right around the corner. But we do know that God is with us. We do know that his grace is abundant We do know that his love is sufficient. We do know that his mercy is new every morning. And so when we are faced with a situation that looks scary, that looks dangerous, that looks like it will not end well for us, remember these two words, but God. And then walk in the freedom of the gospel that is found in these two words and walk confidently knowing that God is with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we are so thankful for those two words, but God. Lord, we are thankful that those words ooze grace, that Lord, those two words sum up the gospel for us so very plainly, but so powerfully. Lord, we cannot do anything but praise you and thank you for your faithfulness towards us for your love and your mercy that you bestow upon us as a free gift, your undeserved favour. And so, God, we, we thank you that indeed your activity in this world is what can give us strength and what gives us the most amazing hope. Lord, I don't know what each person is facing right now, but God. I don't know the struggles, I don't know the pain, but you do, and you're right with us even in the midst of those moments. Lord, I pray for little Cain and the challenging circumstances that he and his foster family are in. Lord, may your grace abound. Lord, we've heard reports of families in New Zealand who are struggling with cancer and Lord, we know that that is such a challenging circumstance. And in the midst of that, you are still there. But God, being rich in his wonderful mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made alive, made us alive together with Christ, by grace we've been saved. So we thank you, Lord Jesus, and we remember those words. And may those words be on the front of our mind in the midst of any circumstances we face that are challenging for us, those words, but God. Amen.